mobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. everyone and thank you for tuning into this second ever podcast of Gone Mobile. Uh, if you missed the first episode, we're we're a brand new podcast that's focusing on all things mobile related uh, with with a particular slant towards a lot of the .NET space and what's going on there. If you tuned in last week, you'll be familiar with myself, Greg Shackles, and I also have John Dick on the line again. Um, but missing from this week because he's uh, moving back to New Zealand is Nick Wise. But in his place, we have a, a brand new host for you, um, James Clancy, who I'll let introduce to you now. Hello, my name is James Clancy. I'm a mobile developer at Xamarin. I love all things mobile. I specialize in iOS in particularly. I do still build stuff for Android and Windows, but I really do love iOS. My main app is Gmusic, a Google Music client for iOS. All right. Well, it's also definitely awesome to have you on board and... Uh... So last week was a little bit of a, a roundtable discussion of uh, just all sorts of random topics that we found interesting at the time. But going forward, we want to have a lot of guests on the show to, to really dig into specific topics. And obviously, with tomorrow's release of iOS 7, that's kind of the, the hot topic of the day. So we wanted to really dig into some of the new stuff that's in there. Um, and in order to do that, we've, we have an awesome guest on the line with us, who's uh, Mike Bluestein, who also is an engineer over at Xamarin. Um, but I'll let, I'll let Mike kind of introduce himself to all of you now. Hey, guys. Thanks, Craig. Um, so, yeah, my name is Mike Bluestein. I'm a, I'm a developer evangelist now at um, Xamarin. And um, I've been working with iOS 7 now uh, quite a bit last um, last few weeks, actually. You know, I've been really since the WWDC, I've been looking at things. But uh last few weeks, been focusing on it more as, we get gotten, if we, as we've gotten closer to the release. So pretty excited uh, for this, this upcoming release and, and talk about some of the bits that are in there. Great. Well, like I said, it's it's definitely awesome to have you on here. I know you've been working a lot with iOS 7 recently, and you have some upcoming talks on it and everything. So we figured between you and, and James, honestly, who's who's been doing a lot of work with it as well, we should be able to really dig in. Just to kind of get the conversation kicked off a little bit, I think the most obvious place to start is the the brand new design. I mean, this is quite honestly the, the biggest design change since iOS came out in the first place so i know you know mike you've been you've been doing some work with it so like how have you found it to to work with the new apis and the new design styles well the, the style wise i mean the c- controls are you know a lot of the if you're using a lot of the um the ui kit controls there's subtle changes in the apis but many of the apis are are similar um the look is dramatically different in some cases you have a little bit of behavior difference um but for the most part, it's it's pretty familiar, like programming against you know UIKit. Anyway, there are some important things though. Um, some big areas, like um, for example, full screen content. They've they've kind of changed the whole, you know, kind of the basic design of the the platform as opposed to what they've had in the past, and that can affect the layout in, in certain areas. And then there's the use of color and the use of certain artifacts in the user interface that they didn't so so much uh, focus on before. Before they had images, and it was just like kind of different look and feel. Um, so they've kind of, you know, redone all the controls and in, you know, the course of redoing all the controls to make them sort of fit their new design style, they've, uh, you know, changed little pieces of the API here and there to, you know, make things uh, be adaptable. For example, in view controller, you can now, you know, do some things that, you know, to deal with full screen didn't have to in the past or deal with status bars that, you know, you maybe want, might not have dealt with straight from a view controller. So I think, I think what people will see is like a, a lot of what was there before would be familiar. However, a lot of, there's there's definitely you know, there's definitely work to do in, in adapting the user interface, and a little bit of work to do in like you know how you would work with your existing controls. However, there's a variety of new APIs that you can also that some have that, that are completely you know didn't exist before that you really want to take advantage of iOS seven. You, know, you can really make your app shine. So do you find that, like, for instance, that you're doing a lot of uh, if statements kind of to support both the, the versions, like the iOS 6 as well as 7? Like, what's your experience in how Apple's treated that transition for actually? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, so, you know, I'm, I'm, James will probably have a better answer to that because he's building full-blown applications, whereas I'm, I'm working on a lot of feature samples and articles and trying to explain APIs. And, and some of the samples, we've dealt with it a little bit. But I think you almost need to be doing a full-blown app. To really, to really have a proper, you know, a proper appreciation for like trying to support, you know, backwards to the, you know, to iOS six. We'll just, just keep keep to iOS six, right? Assume, you know, assume you're in, you're not even in a, in a situation where you'd have to go to five. It's it's not quite. I, I think that's a pretty reasonable assumption, mostly. Mostly, 
hopefully, I think obviously the easiest thing, if, if you can just move forward to iOS 7, I think they said at their conference that you know, they had 94% or something like that adoption on 6. And people adopt it really quickly. It's like you know, it's kind of like the inverse situation from Android for a variety of reasons, of course, right? So you know, you'll get adoption. But you know that said, there's still people might want to support. They might be in a corporate environment. They need to go back and support 6. Or you know, maybe they still want to target older devices. And you know that, that 6%, 10%, that's still a pretty healthy install base. So, you know, you might want to have, you know, versions, you know, version of your application that works on six and seven. And to, to do that, it really kind of depends on the app, right? Um, if, you, if you're doing something with, um, you know, kind of like stock controls, then do a lot of custom controls. And if you specifically, if you, if you tried to, if you, if you took into account auto layout and adopted auto layout in, in six, I think you'll move, you'll, you'll have an easier path moving forward. If you didn't do that, if you either have a lot of custom controls or, you know, you're kind of, you know, either laying things out manually or using, um, was it struts and springs? Might be a little bit harder in some areas, but I think it'll be as hard as, as people think. Now, as far as, like, you know, what whether you'd have, like, yeah, there, it, again, it would depend on your code, but it's certainly there, there, there'd be some places where you'd you'd have to say, like, have some block of code that's for, you know, to deal with when you're running on, you know, uh, not running on 7, some block of code to deal with when you're, you know, running on it. But... I don't know if, if you're getting into a lot of code like that. You know, that, I'm not sure. Like, you know, I, I mean, in my samples, honestly, the, in the things I've been working on, that's been minimal. But you know, what is James? James, what do you think about that? I mean, how how did you do that you know, in your app? What what did you do to deal with backwards compatibility to iOS six? Well, it really depends on what classes you're using. For G Music, I cheated. I completely went iOS seven. <laughs> I'm doing a brand new version. I decided it was worth it to get that full hundred percent iOS seven native look and feel. And I wanted it to fit and match the platform. And like I said, it all depends on what classes you're using. And if you're using like UI dynamics, things like that, you're definitely not going to be able to share much code. And you're going to have a lot of if defs if you're going back and forth between the two versions and just checking what version you're on, if you can apply attributes. And to me, that's way more work than needed, especially since it's such a drastic change. Um, the UI view containment, whether or not you should apply stuff, should you just add a table header that changes based on what iOS version you're on. Just things like that are just, it's a lot of ugly, messy spaghetti code to deal with. And I wanted to make sure that I really embraced iOS 7. So I am planning on doing a new version for Gmusic 2 for iOS 7. That being said, I am going to keep my old version around for a little bit, and I am backporting all of my brand new playback engine for iOS 7. But yeah, it just didn't seem like it was it was worth it to try and do two versions of the same one. Um, just to try at one point, I tried taking all the new code and then getting it to run an iOS 6 device. And after two hours of it blowing up on device of invalid selectors, I finally gave up and said, no, no. It just it's better for my users and all the way around to really do a separate version for iOS 7. Um, if you are just going to go for the f- new flat UI, you could probably do it pretty simple. But I really use things like Tint. I love Tint, and I love the new UI images, how you can just say, take this image, um, always tint it because it's used as a template and an image. And things like that are awesome and amazing. And to me, that alone is worth it just having a separate new version for for iOS 7. And I might get a little bit of pushback from my, my clients and my users, but I really hope not. Um, I really, really want to embrace this new right. iOS that, that's 7. That's really interesting that you're, you're maintaining a couple versions there, and it, it's definitely understandable why you would do that. Um, one of the things that, that I'm wondering what you ended up doing, uh, you, as you mentioned, your, your application makes use of one of those you know, slide-out menus from the left. You know, some people call them hamburger menus or whatever. Uh, is that something that you're still using in the iOS 7 version, even though there are, you know, the new UI navigation controller has its own gestures built in. So yep. that kind of, that, that has some collisions that I can imagine with that. Yes, I did continue using it. Really? Um, I know a lot of people are saying that this doesn't make sense with the new backswipe gesture, but to me, the backswipe gesture just really enforces that in people's minds. 
When I swipe back, I go backwards. So if I think about it as a menu, I go into G Music, I click on artist, I click on their album, I press, I swipe back to go back to the artists. Now I swipe back again to get to the menu. It just makes sense. And it really does follow that same idea. So it was a little bit of work to get it to work right. I had to play around quite a bit to disable their gesture and pass the gesture along appropriately. <laughs> you really only want the gesture to work when they're at the base of a navigation controller. And mm. in my opinion, it should only work then anyway, but it's always active. So that's a little glitch on Apple's end. So after I got that working, I love it. And now with the new view containment for the view controllers and the status bar as part of it, I was able to do a really, really cool effect. And now my status bar swipes out with it and it looks amazing. Okay, so that that makes sense. So so it's more more apps that would you know keep a persistent left menu on iOS six that would end up having problems then. Um, but but since your app only really has it at the base level, it's it didn't end up being an issue. Correct. I use it as a navigation, not as an extra info pane. Yeah, um, I I bring it up because I you know I'm building apps that also make use of kind of a persistent left menu, and I'm just kind of stuck thinking about. Well, how should that interaction work, and and how should that UI evolve into what fits into iOS seven? Um, since they just kind of stepped on the throat of the the old way of doing it. Yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, depending on your UI or what works, you might need that persistent menu. Um, you still can always pull it out from the right, which is definitely a good option. But from the left, they kind of have taken that from us. Um, I was hesitant on G Music. My now playing screen, you can drag up from the bottom. And I still make it to where you can tap to make that happen. But I was worried with the control center whether or not that would conflict. But it worked out quite nicely for me. So, uh, I mean, so when you were porting G Music over to, to iOS 7, uh, what other kind of things did you run into, you know, both, both good and bad in, in bringing it up to date? For the most part, I had a blast bringing it over to iOS 7. I had a great designer, which really, he really got the concept of iOS 7, which helped a lot and made it nice and easy. Um, but along those lines, Apple kind of gave some guidelines on how we're supposed to do some of these UI effects. They really, really showcase that blur and frosted look and feel. Unfortunately, they did not make it easy to use, to replicate. By default, the UI navigation bars will automatically add that frosted blur effect for you, and you have to disable it if you don't want it. The problem is, if you're a dark-themed and styled app like G-Music is, you, the effect just doesn't work right. If you add the tint color to merge in with it, there's a bar tint you set, it completely whitewashes the completely whitewashes all the content below it out. It's merged with this white color. Um, if you go black, you even lose all of your color. It's it's sad. And because of this, I think this is why as we're looking at that site of all the iOS before and after shots with iOS 7, all the apps are light themed. No one's going dark. And it's because if you want that nice frosted look and feel, you have to do a custom blur. And to do that, like I said, they didn't give you a nice API. You get no notification when the view underneath it changes. So how do you know when to refresh? Some of the options that people are doing is they just make their blur view every time it finishes blurring it just goes and blurs again and it just blurs as fast as possible but that's very very cpu intensive if you check it out your performances on my iphone 5 it was using 30 percent more cpu just to add a blur effect it's ridiculous i shouldn't have to do all that um i really wish apple would have just exposed a view or a property on the view and you just say background color equals blurred and I also want it to blur at this radius and merge in this tint color and only this tint color. Don't whitewash it. I, I know what color I want. My designer picked it. And that would really, really make all of these apps better. And hopefully we'll get that in a new version, but you'll definitely see lots of very light colored themes because they want that nice blur effect. Aside from that, I that was my biggest headache. I spent a couple days trying to replicate it properly. I have some decent okay blurs that were smart and only update when you scroll but getting it just right was very difficult now i have a solid bar and now when i have more time after ios 7's launch i'll spend a little bit more time and hopefully get it right what did you do with the tint color clancy you said you said you'd um you'd, you'd scrap your tint color for seven because now they have the tint color at the top level that they use for the you know coloring all the tint on the text in a view hierarchy is that what you were talking about are you talking about old ios 6 tint color on the net on the bars 
So they did add a new tint property. It's on the navigation bars. They added the UI tint, um, UI bar tint color, which is what it uses to do the blur effect. Is it white? It merges that blur in and or that color into the blur. And when it does that, it definitely does also merge in white, which is a major headache. Um, but as they also do have the old tint property, which is still there and still usable and. Um, I really liked using that one as well. I did assign it on my window. Um, I love that I can use that to retheme all of my images. That's the main places I'm using is I set my, I do it for buttons and you can set it based on, or so you just set the tint property and then the colors will automatically retheme themselves accordingly, which is awesome. So you just say, this is a template image. And from that point on, it's recolored. And I love that. It's nice and easy to instantly change it um, based on states or based on new themes. And I don't have to add a bunch of images. I just have the base button image and I just retint it. And it's a really, really nice API. And I'm really, really glad they added that. It's quite nice. They also added, a, it's interesting how they have the terms, that they also added a tint color. Now, that's one of their main things that they use on um, UI view. You can even set it on UI window. Because you know how they have like you know all the all the the like on the UI navigation bar you know using UI navigation control and now the back button will just be text and all the buttons are text and they they you know they delineate things with color in a lot of places so they have a you know, UI view has a tint color and it'll just basically go you know you set it on the UI view and it goes all the way down through that piece of the view hierarchy whenever you want it everywhere you just set it on the on the window and that's called that property is called tint color. They have a tint color to change method that you can like listen for changes. Um, yeah, but that that's a you know a little different one. But it's like you know just people might get confused. It's like oh, there's tint color, there's tint color in the navigation bar, there's bar color tint, there's you know, the tint color that's the main one that you need to use now in iOS seven in order to you know control the color. You know, like they use it in the calendar app to like control the the color you know that that gets put up into the the navigation bar. Um, if people are listening, like, that they might see tint color and they're like, what tint color was? For those guys talking about, it's like the, the tint color iOS that, that Apple's probably talking about if you see it in any of the iOS 7 docs or anything like that is probably the one I'm referring to, just the UI, the UI views tint color. But then, of course, like, like James was saying, it's like, yeah, and they, well, they had tint color before, so now they had like to take some, like, yeah, they, they had to change some property names in a variety of places where tint was being used in other ways. Um, so it's like, gets a little bit confusing, you know, with some of the terminology that they have. You, you brought up UI kit dynamics, though. We should talk about that. That's a, I think that's one of the the hottest things in the in the whole platform, honestly. Um, yeah. So, so, do you want to dig into that a little bit? Um, the UI Kit Dynamics is basically a, a physics engine. It's actually it's actually Box Two D underneath. They use there's a private framework. Well, yeah, I guess I can say there's there's a private framework called Physics Kit underneath the covers, and that's actually wrapping Box Two D. And they're actually using that in another framework they have called Sprite Kit, which is a little two D game framework. So that they're using that um, box. They didn't like say it anywhere, but that's what they're using. So they're using Box2D, which is great, and they have a nice API around it. But with, in, with what's cool is with UIKit Dynamics is it's, it's actually a physics engine, not really built in and designed in for games. It's, it is in the SpriteKit framework, but with UIKit Dynamics, it's, it's designed in the UIKit, hence the name UIKit Dynamics. And what you might think, like, well, and I thought at first, like, why would I want a physics engine inside of a, a thing that's laying out controls for, like, an application, a non-game? But what why you would is you can do... Some, some cool interaction. So, you know, you're, you're doing animation and, you know, you can, you could always, they always had a, you know, since day one, iOS has had a fantastic animation system, both from the API standpoint and from how it works underneath. But with UIKit Dynamics, you can get really realistic interact, interactions between things and create, inter, you can create animations that, even though they're kind of going in this more digital feel of things, right? Where they're not making it, what was sort of skeuomorphic? They're not making it look like real world, real world things. I don't know if that's even the proper use of that term, but. That, that's what it is, right? It's more digital now. But with UIKit Dynamics, you can actually make the interaction feel real world, even though it's digital. I mean, they have it in a simple place, like, for example, in the messages app, where you text message or you use iMessage. They just kind of bounce the little bubbles next to each other. A simple thing, you know, but that that only that, that really kind of scratches at the surface for some of the interaction. Because you can do things like, say, you had a, a bunch of pictures. I remember there was one guy who showed an example. He had a bunch of pictures stacked, and you wanted to add a picture to a list. You can you can you can basically throw the picture on the list and have the behavior act as if you know these these rectangles bounce into each other and they behave like you know with physics so they get this real world interaction or, or inserting and removing data and then beyond that then there's other things like say you're just going to put something um, 
again, you're inserting something into a grid, so you're using collection view or something like that. You can snap and get this almost uh, kind of spring-like magnetic, you know, I don't know if it's magnetic, more like a spring-like effect where it's actually bouncing into place. Um, things like that, you can attach things together. So perhaps if you were like sliding one, you, know, you had that like fly-out navigation, if you were sliding one thing, you could have another piece of UI attached to it. And it can kind of just kind of go along for the ride on some sort of like a rigid bar attached. So you can create animations that are really interesting looking. You can also create some that are really egregious, I'm sure, right? But you can you can create like a really interesting natural feel to the user interface if, if used nicely, if you have a nice designer and someone who really appreciates user experience. Um, and the beauty of the whole thing, though, from a programmer's perspective, it's it's bloody trivial to implement. I mean, they basically, it's just, it's a declarative API. You create they have these things called behaviors. And so you almost don't even really need to know too much about physics. I mean, you, you need to know what you're trying to achieve, but you, you basically attach behaviors, behaviors for things like, like for what I was talking about just now, where you detach things together, there's an attachment behavior. They have behaviors for collisions, like a collision behavior, uh, you know, for gravity, stuff like that. And then you just take these behaviors and then they have another class. There's a thing, there's this animator class and you, know, you basically wrap some things around a, a view. It also works with collection view layouts. And then you just, you know, have all these behaviors describing your physics and you attach it to this animator um, that's wrapping up the thing that you're trying to animate. And then boom, animation happens and it all just kind of behaves right. And it's just a few lines of code. Um, you, it, it, I think, you know, I've, I've got some things to, you know, work, work to make it work and how the how to, but to actually to, 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 to get to the point where it's like, what do you want to do? Um, it's so easy to use that you could almost iterate an experiment with it so easily that I think it'll be, you know, people will come up with some interesting, you know, some sort of really interesting user interfaces um, and user interface experiences, I guess that's the right, like user experiences. I, I hope, I think it's going to be a neat thing. Um, so, so it's like, you know, I, I told people check that out. It's called UI Kit Dynamics. Um, and it's uh, pretty great. Obviously a big fan of that. So yeah, you should try it out in, in, in G Music, maybe like games with the, possibly like I, I can imagine it, Envision it where you have like the music covers, right? And maybe if you're just like kind of flipping through the music, you can have them have sort of maybe like a little subtle, little natural transition there. Maybe some things could bounce a little bit. It can make it look really cool. I mean, it looks cool already anyway. You mentioned that uh, the UI dynamic stuff was somewhat related to the Sprite Kit APIs, and that was one of the new things that was introduced. Have you played around with that at all? Sure. Well, it's not related to it. I mean, it's totally different. What's related is not really related, but. There's a physics, you know, UI Kit Dynamics is basically a, phys- a physics engine built into UI Kit, and that physics engine underneath the covers is Box 2D. And uh, Sprite Kit, which I have played with, yeah, it's a it's a 2D game framework. Um, it's a lot like Cocos 2D, um, only it integrates. I'll just say it integrates really nicely with iOS, right? With views and with core graphics, and you know, in some ways that it's not necessarily easily or even at all achievable for the Cocos guys. Um, but yeah, so Sprite Kit is a, a 2D game framework. Um, the first actually official game framework, I believe, that Apple has made. And uh, it, in, in what, what's related or what's common is it actually has a physics engine built in with it as well inside of uh, Sprite Kit. And that physics engine underneath is boxed. I guess to, to, to some extent a detail, although it's a heck of a detail, right? Uh, box 2D is pretty awesome. But so yeah, that, that's, um, that's a gaming framework, right? So if you wanted to make a 2D game and like, you know, it's interesting that Apple, this, you know, it's, it's, it just kind of became this popular frame, you know, platform for games, obviously, right? And they never really had, you know, they had OpenGL, and, but they never had an, a, an, a, a game framework. You know, they had like the core pieces that you need to build something like that. But they never had a game engine. They never had some kind of an API to build games. People rolled their own things. Or you know, if you try to do it with UIKit, you know, depending on what you're trying to do, that could be not, not work so well, you know, perhaps for puzzle games or certain genres. but you know, real action games or interaction that's adventure and things aren't going to be the best. Yeah, it seems kind of interesting that they're introducing it so late in the game. And, and one of the things that I, I thought was uh, pretty cool, too, is the whole notion of, of being able to use game controllers with it. I mean, you start to see now um, people questioning, you know, should Nintendo go make uh, their games for these other platforms and, and abandon their own hardware? And, and given things like Apple TV and, and AirPlay interaction, um, I don't know, do you guys see... Apple trying to dig into the gaming market with with just seeing the game controller capabilities and sprite kit coming along. I think so. I, I don't, and the game controller will work from what I understand. I haven't used that because I can't get a real controller. Right? I guess they don't have one, but um, yet. But the game controller framework will work with other things besides beyond sprite kit, if I'm not mistaken. Although, of course, it will work well with sprite kit. Um, but yeah, and sprite kit. It seems to me like sprite kit is really just you know, they're, Apple of course wants people to you know develop on like all all these vendors and. 
they want you to develop on their platform. And Sprite um, Cocos 2D, which is a great framework, um, started going cross-platform where they have, they have a C++ one, right? Cocos 2DX. I believe there's a JavaScript variant that you can do Cocos 2D to go cross-platform. And since, since, since I'm here, I'm going to kind of our thing. There's, there's, a, there's an open source um, Cocos 2D XNA framework that's a C-sharp port of Cocos 2D that sits on top of the, the awesome monogame um, framework. I'm sure people listen are familiar with. So, you know, there's these different cross-platform ways to use Cocos 2D now, and Apple wants to kind of reel people back in to iOS only, which is what the original Cocos 2D iPhone wasn't the original. There was a there's a original was a Python one, but so I think that's what they're trying to do. They're just trying to like you know kind of give give some kind of a solution so that like keep people, keep even new people or maybe existing Cocos people not to not go cross platform. And if they make it really integrated with iOS, with you know with views, for example, um, make it real easy to do textures. You know, make it easy to at use use paths, you know, to, to, to describe physics boundaries, say, make it really integrated with the platform APIs and with tooling-wise and all. That um, That's kind of, I think, their approach. They just want to, like, make a, a great 2D platform that's kind of locks people in, of course, to iOS. Um, and then with the game controller, you know, I almost think that they'll, I don't know, it's like, I, I think it's really a cool idea. I, I'd, I'd almost expect, like, there'd be something with the Apple TV at some point. I was surprised they hadn't done it yet. Where you'd have maybe, you know, you imagine the scenario where you got, you got your phone and you kind of pop that, that guy into a controller and maybe the phone runs part of the game, but then you could kind of communicate to a game running on the Apple TV or a new version of it. And then they'd have an SDK there and then you can have the, the, the phone actually be this fantastic interface for a controller, but then there'd actually be the buttons for the controller on the side. Some sign of scenario like that, it would be like a, super controller you know better than the xbox controller yeah i could definitely see that happening i mean i was i was also really hoping for some kind of apple tv announcement during that keynote um i i pretty i find that i spend most apple keynotes really really waiting for you know finally waiting for an apple tv announcement that just never really seems to come i would Um, love to see apps for apple tv every single time that's all i want and they never deliver yeah i predict it every time too i know i know but but i keep hope alive But I, I I was reading some interesting stuff about um, some people kind of just you know coming up with theories on you know the the short term gains that Apple might be trying to get out of moving to the 64 bit architecture with iOS 7 and the the new iPhone 5s um, and a lot of people were were trying to, starting to make the connection of well maybe there's a new Apple TV coming down the pipe I know there's a, there's another event in a month that I'll keep my hopes out for yet again. Um, but I was curious if you guys had any thoughts on that. I, I I think that it could really open some doors, probably for you know higher video quality and and maybe some connections with some of the the game controller stuff if they want to do a better you know iPhone to to Apple TV gaming experience as well. That's my opinion as well. Is I don't think that it's really to try and gain, claim more of the gaming market. I mean, they already have a huge chunk of it gaming market. I mean, yes, they don't have the hardcore gamers, the people who want a an Xbox or a PS3. But I think that you're exactly right. My gut feeling is that they introduced this. You can't, I mean, yes, there's Coco's 2D and there's all these other ways to do, to build games for an iPhone. I mean, big companies are still going to use what they've always used. They're not going to jump over to Sprite Kit. But you, I think that they are preparing for the Apple TV. And if you're going to say, we have a gaming platform, come to our multimedia, you can do games on it. They need controllers and they need their own actual game framework. You just can't open this up without a true framework. You can't say, go use somebody else, go figure it out. They need that story. Apple does a complete story. And that's where that's coming from. Not to claim more, but just in preparation for when we finally get that Apple TV SDK. They will say, look, it's a gaming console, multimedia. You've got controllers. You've got Sprite Kit. You've got all your media apps. You're good to go. And I just that more. I just think it's for that full story is what they're going. For. Yeah, I would agree. And it, it might just be wishful thinking at this point, but but I've I've at least I've at least convinced myself that that's where they're going. So I'll I'll keep hoping every time. When I first saw the sprite, I, I kind of agree with that too. By the way, but when I first saw that sprite kit framework, in, in some ways I saw, I started seeing. Remember, you, know, you guys ever do Silverlight development? And remember when that was released? <laughs> I'll admit that I did quite a bit of Silverlight development, right? And I still think it was a, a terrific platform. Hopefully, you know, people didn't just hang up on the podcast. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll contend to this day, I thought it had a lot of really interesting things. 
But one thing that I don't know if it was it was interesting. I don't know if it was so useful. They, remember, they had that you could you could basically paint a media brush on, so you can paint paint video on anything, and it was real trivial to do, right? But it performed really well. So you'd have like text with video playing on it. They've got some kind of a, you know they've got that something like that in uh, one of the one of the Apple talks from their conference. They had um the guy when he when he gave the spray kit talk, I, he was showing like you know showing video um on on on, on nose and um. I thought that was interesting. It like some, in some, to some extent, it felt a, a little bit like Silverlight to me. Um, not, you know, in that in that regard, anyway, that it was like you know, they had some kind of interesting visual, you know, capabilities that weren't necessarily. It didn't kind of click in my mind how that would even be part of a game. Maybe there's something to that with like you know how you then use that with a TV, perhaps take the TV video and like put it onto some other kind of a, you know, some some other kind of element that you can then throw it off to the side and who knows. I don't know, but um, that was interesting. It's like it's interesting to see what what they do with the Apple TV. I also am like I was expecting um, actually quite some time now that there'd be an Apple PS, you know, an official SDK. And it's surprising to me that nothing's happened. But you know, maybe they're just getting it the way they are. They just want to get it in what their mind is just right, you know. And maybe you know, maybe you're right, Clancy. Maybe it is. Yeah, the Sprite Kit thing is really like not just to have it like for the for iOS, but to like you know they need something like that to. To, 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 if they're going to introduce some other platform that's going to target in a big way gaming beyond what they have already with the phone, um, they needed to have their own framework for that and possibly to complement some other newer things they're building. There's another another thing they had that I thought was going to be coming. So I I, I, I thought they were going to I kind of thought there was going to be some kind of a game announcement, game framework announcement, but not Sprite Kit. That actually surprised me. They have this other thing. There's this um, um, 3D framework called Scene Kit. On, on OS 10, and it's really great. I, I encourage anyone just check it out, even if you don't have any, if, you, if you're not doing Mac development, just check out some of the demos that they did during the, the WWDC. It was, it was pretty impressive. So it's like, you know, it's like a 3D scene graph, but you can do all kinds of interesting things. I thought that was going to be coming to, um, to iOS. They heard some folks said that they saw some stuff in headers and whatever. So I was, I was, I still think it is. It's just maybe it's not ready. So it's like, you know, maybe this, maybe right now it's Sprite Kit and it's 2D. And perhaps sometime in the future, something 3D will be kind of blended into it. I'm not sure. But I, that's another interesting thing to look out for. It's like, I thought it would come, I thought we'd have it now. Like some kind of easy way to do 3D, you know, kind of 3D visualizations and things like that. Like, I think kind of interesting. Yeah. And, and one other thing that, that kind of, it's, it seemed to sneak under the radar a little bit. Um, you know, they didn't, they didn't really pimp this up too much, but. Uh, they're really beefing up the the BTLE support, you know, the the low energy Bluetooth support in iOS seven, um, and introducing their own what they they're calling iBeacons. Yeah. Uh, you know, PayPal just came out with, came out with another similar product called Beacon. But really, and honestly, for as someone you know, I, I work in the the mobile payment space a lot in mobile commerce. Um, so uh, I can I can really see you know low energy Bluetooth kind of just killing NFC off and really taking off as you know. Uh, uh, the real mobile payment solution that that just about every device is going to support, and like my my guess is that this is exactly why Apple never jumped on the NFC train, and and that this is this is how they're going to bring you know their own wallet into Passbook and, and really really make a dent there. And I'm, uh, I'm definitely really excited about it. Uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, I don't know about it killing NFC. Maybe in some scenarios. I mean, maybe you're right. Um, I guess. Uh, I don't know. NFC is kind of a weird thing, anyway. It's like it always seemed like it's almost a little intrusive to like try to use it. But then again, you can use it against things that take no power, right? Um, but yeah, the B- I beacons. I beacons looks like a cool. You know, in, so, in some scenarios, that could be really interesting and could be really cool. Um, you know, going in. They have um. What, what do they do? They have a. They have APIs inside of core location now with the location. You know, they're basically the the geofencing, the significant location change. That, all that jazz can now be done against um, iBeacon, which, like I said, sits on top of Bluetooth low energy. So you can do like indoor, you know, indoor location scenarios. See when when people come into a room and you know do some kind of things. And, and that's in that case, I don't know if that's good or bad. I was I was chatting with some folks about this, and I was thinking like, oh, I'm going to walk into a store, and I'm going to like suddenly my my phone's going to like start firing firing like alerts at me, and I'm going to get all these like kind of no, now, and they made the notification system with all the extra multitasking and backgrounding support they have now like it's so that i can i can start getting like silent notifications in the background and suddenly it'll be plopping all these like you know, lock screen notifications on me like when i walk into a you know a store and like you know you have 17 coupons and buy this buy this welcome back mike 
I, I think that might happen, <laughs> but um, someone will do it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm, sure it'll, I'm sure it'll go too far. Yeah, I, I think so. But then there'll be good scenarios too, right? There'll be there'll be folks that you know try to use it, like for like we were talking about. Um, someone Joseph had to talk about um, using it in maybe manufacturing or in like a warehouse scenario. And there's some places, some 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 use cases in there, possibly at a conference, right? Maybe like where someone someone else had mentioned, like oh, when you have like bird, birds of a feather session, where it's like you know you can actually you know have like something um, with a little higher fidelity about who's at a particular room or who's just entered. Oh, Clancy just walked in to the the birds of a feather room about audio. I want to go chase him down so he can you know teach me about you know audio APIs or. You know, that kind of thing. Um, it might be some, like, kind of really useful things that could be done with it. Um, Bluetooth low energy in general, I think, is starting to boom, right? Didn't the, I think it, Apple said there's a million devices now on the, in the world using Bluetooth low energy, something like that. Maybe a little more. I, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, things like Fitbit, Fitbit and all the other the fitness things that are out there are all making use of it. Um, you know, the Pebble uses it, so it's definitely taking off. And their whole, they, they did some updates to their core Bluetooth APIs as well, even beyond the iBeacon. So you, you just want to use it directly. You know, they have that. They made it, I guess, you know, it looks like they tried to simplify the API versus 6 a little bit. Have you, have you played with the new APIs much? Yeah, yeah. I, I actually had, I, I, was, I was actually, it's funny you said that because I was actually, right before I got on the call, I was just, I was just, um, just mucking around with something. Um, just some simple, some simple scenarios, you know, nothing. Nothing fancy, just making two devices talk together. I think I got kind of get it working pretty well. It's it's uh, it's pretty straightforward, you know. They just it's like it's like what they had before. They just simplified some things, yeah. But I'm I'm far from you know expertise on that to like you know talk about all the details of what's changed. But it's like a pretty simple API to use. Certainly the iBeacon API is easy because that's just <clears throat> excuse me, that's just that's just like your classic core location APIs. It's just like you, know, you can use it in other scenarios now. That looks like the fun one to play, you know, if you can. If you have a, re- you know, if you have some kind of a, like you're saying, like point of sale, right? That would be a really, yeah, that would be really compelling, you know, if used nicely in a point of sale situation, you know, when someone's kind of walking up to the desk, perhaps, right? Something like that, or they're coming near the the department, like the salesperson can see what you just scanned, or maybe answer your question, or I don't know, <laughs> maybe actually, or just do the commerce, right? You know, maybe maybe they could kick off the actual pur- purchasing event beforehand. Not sure. I think you kind of nailed it too. Just talking about like you know you don't want to walk into a place and be bombarded everywhere you go. So it's going to have to take a, a smart combination of sort of not giving you too much information that you don't want and knowing what you actually need or or are looking to get. And I mean, with the payment stuff, I think that um, the Apple can definitely pick up some of that space. But I, I'm really interested, as Greg touched on the PayPal beacon idea, and it looks like it's using the low energy Bluetooth as well. And now I'm not sure given the closed nature of Apple, how that's going to work out for them on the iOS platform. Um, I don't know enough about those APIs yet, but uh, I think it's going to take someone who, who implements a solution across multiple platforms. Just looking at the market share of Android right now, compared to iOS, like I don't think that Apple's one solution is, is going to just win out everywhere and be ubiquitous enough that you, you just can forget about your wallet. And that, that's kind of my ultimate goal. Uh, idea is i don't have to carry credit cards around anymore um i mean we have a lot of nfc stuff here in canada so i don't think that's going away anytime too quickly either but that's not to say they can't build in some of the the bluetooth stuff into those same readers i mean at pretty much everywhere you go now in a major store you can tap your your credit card to pay um so I, I, we talked about that a little bit on the last episode so you should definitely check that out if you haven't heard it already um but it's uh, maybe not as common in the U.S., but in, I think in uh, Canada and other parts of the world, that whole NFC thing is still kind of going strong. So I, I'm still a little bit surprised Apple had never touched on that and, and sort of went straight into this iBeacon and the low-energy low Bluetooth stuff. Yeah, and I know Google just announced a, a new version of their Google Wallet app that actually doesn't finally doesn't rely on NFC. So to me, that kind of signals, you know, that they're going to start taking this over to other platforms like iOS. So I could see them taking advantage of, of things like Bluetooth low energy, you know, on iOS, you know, if they're, if NFC isn't there or using it on Android devices that don't have NFC or, or Windows phone, if, if that ever gets market share. So I, I just think it's a really interesting space to watch. 
You brought up something interesting when you said Fitbit. The first thing I thought of was that new chip, the M7 or whatever it is, the Fitbit built right into your phone. Yes. I thought that was kind of interesting. I wonder what everyone's going to say about that, all these. I mean, look, Pebble just showed up. Um, Pebble, I know a lot of these are talking about adding some of that stuff in. That's just a big space that's exploding right now. So found that interesting. I'm wondering if that's in preparation for maybe the iWatch or whatever. Oh yeah, there's definitely no end to how much you could speculate about that stuff. But I, that, I also I reacted the same way when I was watching that keynote when they announced those APIs. I was like, oh, you know, all the guys from Fitbit and, and Nike must must be finding this very interesting right about now. So, so one of the other things that that was introduced there, like one of the new big new features of the the 5S, is you know Touch ID and this this fingerprint scanner built right in, <clears throat> built right into the you know, the home button on, on the iPhone. Um, do you guys have any, any strong opinions on that? Yeah, I don't know. What... <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Sorry. well, it's not going to be on Apple servers. So like, but what service is it going to be on? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> to be honest, I know I'm maybe probably one of the only geeks that are like, you know what? I already knew everyone spying on me. Yes. Now we have proof. I knew it. We all knew it, but I'm excited for it personally. I can't wait. Sounds like some other people are excited there, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, my family just walked through and I wasn't quick enough on the mute. That's all right. Yeah, but I, I'm with you, actually. I'm pretty excited for it. Um, you know, you're just going to have to to trust Apple for, for however, mu- however much you can. But but I think, you know, right now it's it's only for, you know, iTunes purchases and unlocking your phone. But I think eventually it's ob- it's obviously going to lead into the payment thing like we were talking about before or... You know, hopefully be able to have some APIs against it so you can use it in your own apps for authentication. So as a developer, you know, even as a user who can just unlock my phone pretty quickly, in theory, if it all works like they say it will, um, I, th- I think it could be really cool. I'm kind of with Clancy, too. I, I'm so far down the rabbit hole of, like, I, I don't really care anymore. Everyone I, I is already looking at me email. I've got, I'm kind of an Android user daily, and uh, Google already looks through all my email to send me Google Now stuff, and I love it, and... You know what? I'm not. I don't live an exciting enough life for uh, most people to care about what's in my email <laughs> or what my fingerprint looks like. So I think it's kind of cool. I, that's one of the features that I'm a little bit sad to see go to iOS and and me not have on Android right away. <laughs> it looks kind of nice how they did it on the on the button there on the um you know on the start you know the it, it's not like you know it looks like the design of the you know the hardware it doesn't get in the way. It's kind of where you're using it anyway. You know, they had the little gold thing around. It looked, looked like it was kind of, you know, like they do the, the hardware side of it. looked like it was designed nice. I'm, I'm not sure about, you know, the uses for it. Who knows? It's not like you, what, it's not even worth worrying about anyway. That's not like you can really control, I guess, what's really happening. And I, I don't think, you know, I don't, I'm like, I don't think Apple's really doing anything with them when they said it's not on their servers. I think, uh, you know, they're, I, I mean, I'd hope that they're not doing anything nefarious with it or nobody is, but yeah. yeah. My fingerprint's already in the FBI and all those databases anyway. What do I? <laughs> but I mean, I mean, my point is, yeah, I mean, I'm just excited for it. I like how Greg brought up the point about being able to authenticate with an app. That's going to be amazing. I don't need a thing, fingerprint ID, but I'd like Google to say, I mean, Apple to say, this is this user. Here's an email address or some identification token. I mean, think about that when you're signing up for an app, you just press your home button and you're signed in. Yeah. That's going to be that's amazing. nice. That's that's um, really or nice. you might not even need that because you know it. You know it is who it is. Um, my only complaint with it, um, they never really hinted up, but I'm guessing you have a passcode backup, and that should work because my kids will still want into my phone. <laughs> but um, something that that hinted for, and this is a prediction for the new iPad stuff. If the new iPads have fingerprint, this might be the perfect space for multi-users. Phones, you don't need multi-users. But how nice would that be? Is you touch your fingerprint and the iPad changes for you. Most people share iPads. So with the iPad space, that's an extremely exciting place. No dealing with multiple stuff, just touch the home button, it unlocks to you. That would be amazing. I would have to agree. I mean, in our household, we, we have an iPad that we, we share back and forth. And, you know, there's always contention of, you know, who gets logged into what or logged out of what. And it would be really, really interesting to be able to just have it detect that for you. Yeah, Android fanboy here. Uh, we've had that for a while, the multi-user uh, access. And I'm, I'd, I'd really, but seriously, I'd, I'd love to see that come to iPad. I mean, that's, uh, I think, a pretty common use case, especially as we get these things more and more in our living room. Um, you look at things like the, the Chromecast and 
and just how we're using these devices more as a central uh, shared device. I would be surprised, and I actually was kind of surprised that they haven't announced that yet, but maybe that'll come with the new iPad. So then speaking of the the new hardware and everything they announced, um, like what do you guys think of the the 5C, the you know what was supposed to be the really cheap version of the iPhone that didn't end up being quite such a cheap version? Personally, I don't want a cheap iPhone. I'm not just trying to be an elitist or anything like that, but I look at the headache that I have whenever I build for Android. I have to deal with all the, I mean, when you're dealing with the low-end hardware, as a developer, it's horrible. Um, Like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, as soon as I upgraded my iPhone 4 to iOS 7, it felt sluggish, very sluggish, and my apps didn't perform like I would want them to. And yes, there's some performance things I can hint to, but as a developer, that's a lot harder. (laughs) I want the easier route. I want the more I want the more powerful hardware. That's one of the things I love about iOS. I like that I've guaranteed to have powerful hardware to run the run it. And that as a developer is amazing. I mean for the consumer level I can see it, but as a developer I do not want a cheap iPhone. They can't step backwards. If the cheap iPhone was identical to the iPhone 5, I mean the 5C is an iPhone 5, new color, plastic back and a better camera. But it's an iPhone 5 for all intents and purposes. Right. I mean you just can't step backwards. Personally, I'm. I probably. I don't, not probably. I wouldn't get one. It's kind of not for me. And I'm, I'm gonna always. I always want to go to the greatest thing. Take more of my money, please, Apple. But um, I think you know a lot of college kids, maybe or you know, younger people. They they might want to. They might. They might be adept at wanting these. Um, but they might want these colored phones, right? And it's like it seems like a silly thing, but I remember when when Apple made the um, the IMAX. Remember they were colored. They had the in the big color tubes in the back, and then they made their they made their laptops colored, and I thought I thought that was silly, and I thought why would anyone ever want that? You know, I was like I had my like you know my black computer, and my you know ugly brown desktop, and beige, and it was like you know, it was like, but I didn't care what a computer looked like. It was like didn't even like cross my mind. Um, but then the things were real popular, and you see these cases, you know, like I I, I you get, I mean I, I don't even. You get a, you get you get these cases. People get these cases, and you see them. Like, they get the pink case. They get the little fur hanging off it. They get God knows what on the case, and it's like they decorate them. And they're like, yeah, I, I think there's something to. There might be something to that. I mean, it's as silly as it. And I know that probably sounds. I have a feeling that like you know between. I think they've got the. At first, I thought the price was uh, was going to be too high because I thought they were going for a lower market. But then I thought about it. And I'm like, no, it, it really isn't, right? I mean, people are kind of they, they even though they cost way more than what you're really paying for them because it's like. You know, it's all subsidized, but people have already got it ingrained in their head that there's a contract, so they think of it as if it really is $99. I think $99 is actually an all right price. It's like the price that kind of anyone can go out and buy it, I think. Not anyone. It's still a lot of money. But I don't know. I think, I think it could actually be a big seller for them. You know, and, the kind of, and, and, and at first I didn't think that, but I've kind of, come, I've kind of changed my thinking. You know, we'll see. You know, I won't get one, but and he's right. It is a five. It, it is basically an iPhone well, I think that was the kind of the most clever marketing strategy yet. Like common, combined with the colors of the phone being more popular with some of the younger crowd and the fact that it is just really an iPhone 5 internally, uh, I'd be really curious to see what their profit margins are on that device compared to the 5S. I, I would be willing to bet that it's going to be a lot higher of a profit margin, even with the $100 left, sure. uh, less than the S. So. I mean, it's kind of like a, a Trojan horse back into the market to to gain a whole lot of, of market share again, and I think just pure profit, um, basically rebranding this thing. And I think the the more telling uh, thing is that just that they didn't keep it around as just the five, like they did rebrand it. Now, having said that, I, I do find it really interesting that they kept the four alive still and and kept that going in foreign markets and everything. And and as a developer, that really disappoints me to see that piece of hardware. 4S, wasn't it? Sorry, yeah, the 4S. Which, me personally, I'm okay with that. I mean, they've done it traditionally once they started. They now, people talk about they wanted a cheaper phone. Well, the 4S is free with contract. I mean, it's a free phone with contract. People are doing that already for every other device, every Android out there. So I don't think it's a bad price point at all. I mean, you have the $100, you have the free. You have options if you want to go iOS. And I know 4S, I'm okay with it still being around just for the, the free model. I really felt horrible when they kept the 3GS around, but at least that's gone and it's being replaced with the 4S. And 4S is still a nice phone too. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good, you know, that's a pretty good device. So, you know, if you're going in there and, you know, free with a contract, 
you know, free with the plan and you're getting a 4S, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a heck of a product you're walking out the door with for free. And I, know, I know many Android phones go out the door and, and increase those numbers because they, there's a lot of free with, the, free with the plan phones. And now, you know, Apple's got this free with the plan phone. That's a heck of a phone. I wonder if they're really keeping that around just to like, you know, now they got something that's really competitive that can kind of, that's kind of their low market thing, right? Something they already had that, you know, and then there's no extra really investment for them to do it. Kind of made sense for them to keep it around. I guess I, I think it's really targeting, you know, the part of the Android market to compete in like that space, not, not at the high end, but we could see. You know, I didn't think they would keep it around, but now, now that um, you know, now, now that they did that, that actually didn't, didn't surprise me at all. After after they announced it and they made it free, seems kind of savvy. No, it made sense, and it was okay because it just it does keep it in. And like I said before, you can't go backwards. You can always keep an older phone around longer, but you can't go backwards. And that's why I really didn't expect anything cheaper. What could they do aside from dropping the same? They did the same price drop they do every time. Everything drops down a grade, and. And when the 5 came out, the 4S dropped down to the $100 phone, and the 3GS was free, and it just moved down the cycle again. So it makes perfect sense. I agree. So so kind of jumping back over to the, the developer and the API side of it, uh, one thing I realized that we just kind of neglected in, in our first run through some of the new APIs is is all the new multitasking APIs that they're introducing around backgrounding and, and push notifications. Um, Mike, I was, I was wondering if you've experimented with these at all. Yeah, well, I, n- n- a little bit. Um, actually, Nina, who works with me, she she's done a, almost all of the work on multitasking on iOS for us, and at least on our, our documentation, some of our samples. I did a little bit of working on that. Um, so she, you know, she she's got she deserves all the credit. She's she's wrote a really fantastic um, um, new version of an article we already had up that includes a lot of great new information. So once the thing releases, uh, it's in the, it's in our um, it's actually in our cross platform section of our documentation site. Because we put it side by side with like kind of Android docs to kind of show you the whole story, but it's the it's the iOS portion of that, and it's once this you know once the whole thing releases, we'll have those docs out, but people can check it out. And it's um yeah, there's there's just all kinds of new. It's just a, that's one of the the largest things that um you know one of the more major things, if not the most major thing from a non UI perspective, um that's been added to iOS seven. Right? And they have new bat. There's new so there's like multitasking, right? So there's yeah, you know, both from a user experience that now you can, you know, when you double click on the home button, you get the whole, you, you see like this kind of whole view of the app and you can kind of swipe between them, but you can kind of still swipe to get rid of them and go back to other apps. But along with that, there's, there's new backgrounding modes. There's a mode um, for, there's a thing called remote notifications. I kind of mentioned it in passing earlier, but you can, you can, applications can, can, they can be woken up to retrieve notification messages, right? And the thing is you can actually get, messages um you can get notifications like apr beforehand so like you know the scenarios such as um there's another thing called background fetch that goes along with it so that's uh, another background um mode that they've added and new multitasking or new backgrounding mode with background fetch along with um you, know, you can get a notification and the you can get data down beforehand so like say say the scenario where you'd um you'd get a notification before and then it'd be like a lock screen thing and then you'd from that notification, you can get directed into the app, and then you get in the app, and then it would go and do something to get the data. Well, now with this, you can go and you can like say you're doing like maybe some little messaging app or some kind of chat app or something like that. You can you can do that you know beforehand. So when the user actually goes through the notification and they go into the application, they get a great you know, they get a better they they have a stand a better chance anyway of getting a better experience. <laughs> so so because they can get you know the data to already be there or at least it's had a chance to get there. Obviously, it depends on network conditions. A variety of different things, so you can do much more in the background. Then they have other things like, um, um, along with that background fetch, because now things can, can actually run in the background. What they have is they have this. Before you can do, there was this thing called um, um, this task completion, and you could like kind of finish something in the background. And you got like a finite amount of time to do it, and it was continuous the time. But now with background fetch, that you still get kind of about the same amount of time, but it can be spread out over like you know, it's it's not continuous. Right, so you kind of like may, might have to handle that, you know, a little bit in your code to adjust for it. But it's, it's it's pretty interesting, right? You can you can you can get information beforehand in a notification, and when the user actually opens it up, they can have this they have fresh content ready to go. Then there's other stuff. There's a there's a background transfer service. Um, this is like so. You, say you had to like upload or download a, a lot of data, so some big file. Um, you can do this now with, with this separate background transfer service, and like you know, be be free of this you know kind of a, a fixed time limit. 
right? Having some time limit over your head to do it. So there's a, a lot more you can do. It's, it's, it's like getting closer. It's not like Android, right? It's designed differently, but it's getting closer. And they still try to, you know, what Apple's tried to do is they, they've, they've tried to add more background capabilities and more multitasking capability while at the same time designing it in such a way that they don't kill the battery, right? That's always the kind of trade with this thing on, on, on phones. And I, it seems like, you know, I'll have to, you know, I've used it. I've been using the thing through the betas, like, you know, just with GM here in the last few days, you know, we're recording this before people will probably, they'll have, they'll have the release version probably by the time they hear this. It, it seems like the battery is pretty solid to me. Um, you know, it, it, it seems to be hanging in there pretty well. Um, and, you know, I'm running different things and, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 I think it's going to be a good thing. Um, you know, there's still the same, you know, like the, you can still do the things like a background location. And, you know, if you did background location and you wanted to use, say, well, I'm going to do locate background location and I'm going to do it with GPS. And well, if I'm going to do, you know, background location and I want to do something with GPS, GPS is going to kill the battery. So you know, there's still the scenarios like don't do things that you shouldn't do in the wrong scenario. Right. Don't do GP, you know, don't, don't demand GPS. If you, if you don't need turn by turn directions and that's really designed for where you'd be maybe plugged into something. Right. But, you know, there's new scenarios and new capabilities to support new scenarios that I think, uh, I think could, 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 could be real exciting, right? For apps that, for apps that both have to like, you know, stock app or anything that's news alert apps, chat, anything where you're getting information or apps that have to move lots of data up in the background, you know, they didn't have to sit there on it. Maybe you get interrupted. You can, you can kind of have things continue. Kind of like, you know, what, what people have been able to do in Android for, for some time. I think those scenarios are more achievable or at least achievable now in iOS when in the past, some things just you really couldn't do quite the way you wanted to. So that's kind of cool. And it looks like they've done it in a, a battery friendly way from what I've seen so far. Right. So we'll see, but it looks like they've done a pretty good job with it from what I can tell. And again, it, when this whole thing drops, like check out our, check out our docs. site. needed did a great job on, um, on our backgrounding, our backgrounding doc, documentation on all the new stuff. It's really well put together. Yeah, they're definitely welcome API changes for sure. Like you said, it's a lot of stuff that you used to be able to only do on Android, and the the experience on iOS just kind of sucked. Yeah. Um. So it's it's nice to kind of bring those up to, up to par with with what Android has. Um. Clancy, I was wondering if you if the iOS seven um, new APIs there like had any effect on what you're doing in G Music. Yes, absolutely. Um. Crazily though, I didn't change a single line of code, and I instantly got some awesome benefits to the background. I already did some of the long task completion stuff to like to keep downloading data or things like that. And I should look into doing some of the more extended ones. But instantly, you can, it now, this is a feature that really wasn't advertised. So if you're using a music app like G Music, you're listening to it, you restart your phone, you now go to the notifi- or the little control panel or press play, it launches the last media app automatically. And they've also got this smart backgrounding mode since I've been testing and I use G Music a lot. It never kills it off, ever, because it's an app that knows I use a lot. And so I listen to that thing eight hours a day, and whenever I come, I can come every, the next morning I wake up, it's still open, running, even though I had it shut down, not playing music. So they're really smart with this automatic backgrounding modes as well that just picks it for you. And I love that now whenever I just press play or on my headset or whatever, it launches the app it knows I want to listen to. And all the music apps should be getting that free, which is amazing. That's really interesting to hear that you you actually didn't have to change any code to just get a much much better experience for for the user. That's really awesome. Yeah, it's kind of and I know Apple's against changing defaults like you can on Android, but it's kind of allowing you to do that. It knows you're listening to music here, might as well continue. But it doing that though um does add some extra work I had to do long term since I'm a streaming app, I need to make sure I do better caching because if they restart, I need to be able to resume instantly because they press play. And you have to be fast with your startup. I have to be able to start playing within seconds, or the user thinks there's a there's an issue and there's something wrong. So there are some extra considerations you need to take, but it's beautiful. Awesome. So I mean, we're definitely around the hour mark now. But uh, Mike, I wanted to ask: Is there anything that that you wanted to bring up that that we've kind of glossed over or or missed talking about so far? Yeah, well, there's one other thing we never mentioned. But I won't go into the details of what it is, but there's there's a framework called TextKit that they added, um, and so in the past, there's been core text, still is, and it's a lower level way of working with text. And Apple's done a lot of work with text in, in, in iOS 7 in general, right? They, they support, you know, they have a lot of really great support for text. And along with that, they've introduced a new fr- higher level framework called TextKit that makes it really easy 
to do, you know, like text layout, text styling, and text interaction where you could actually, you know, respond to like people touching on certain texts. You do things like magazine apps where like, or like your, your like flipbook kind of, your flipboard kind of app where you kind of lay things, lay out the text a certain way, flow text around like, you know, they have a thing called an inclusion path where you, so you can kind of like, like, like with a word processor, you know, like a magazine or something where you flow text around some image, right? And it just kind of lays out nicely and it can happen even at runtime. So you can kind of move it just dynamically read things out. It seems to be very efficient, um, has a pretty straightforward design. So that's, that's another thing I'd encourage people who are like, you know, in implementing, um, um, text-based applications and they want to interact with magazine types, apps, things like that, or, or anything really building like, you know, maybe an IDE. You know, a little mini IDE, and you can almost build something like that. And all their existing text controls have been redesigned, um, re-architected to actually work with TextKit. So, like your UI text can work with TextKit right out of the box. Pretty sweet. Awesome. Um, well, I think at this point that makes a show, unless anyone else has as something they want to to chime in with. But um, Mike, it was really awesome having you on the show. Uh, I think this was a ton of information. Uh, it'll definitely be a lot of work, even to just come up with the show notes for this one, which which is really cool. Um, so thanks again for coming on and thanks again to everyone else for, for tuning in and we'll, we'll see you next time on Gone Mobile.